A um, couple other things about uh, announcements uh, that my wife hit on that I want to add to. First of all, if you are not at Feast tonight, I will put your face in the Face app, and the Russians will have your face from now on. <laughs> if you've already done the Face app, here's what I will do instead. I will make a donation in your name to a politician you don't like. <laughs> so plan accordingly. Um, nothing like the threat of community. Do you know what I mean? Like... Uh, Prayer night this week, what I've been trying to do is bring to us kind of a focus, uh, and I keep writing on pieces of paper this week about our yes as a church and about our kingdom availability as a church. Um, I would like our conversation as a church to shift more into the reasons why we can than the reasons why we can't. So I want us to pray about our availability together on Thursday night. So that'll be Thursday evening. If you've not been, we worship for a while. We kind of pray in a couple different formats and then we go home. And that is not a smack to anybody, by the way. Um, I feel like if there's not a week where I could say I want to shift from why we can to, from why we can't to why we can because pretty often I'm having conversations just about why we can't. So I can't pick a week where that isn't. And, and the other thing I would say, too, um, I sent out an email that looked like it was to you. I would, I would never rebuke you in an email. I would certainly never rebuke you in an email by copying and pasting a Facebook post. However, if you felt something, I'm going to leave it to you to decide if the Lord is trying to communicate with you or not. I've been having some conversations a couple times. I think we're clearing the air in a couple things. I keep having conversations where people say, was that at me? And my only response to that is, I don't know, was it? Right? Um, so if the Lord's getting your attention, the Lord's getting your attention. And um, that's why we're here. So prayer night is about our yeses. Uh, feast tonight don't let your face be co-opted by the Russians. Um, and uh, baptisms on the 11th. Baptisms on the 11th. So if you want to be baptized, let me know. Let's play a little musical trivia. Okay? If you can name this song, you get 50 points. The points can be turned in for shroot bucks. Okay? <laughs> where have all the good men gone? And where are all the gods? Where's the streetwise Hercules to fight the rising odds? Isn't there a white knight upon a fiery steed? Late at night I toss and turn and dream of what I need. Would anybody like to buzz in on this? Not Footloose. Is it in Footloose? I need a hero, Rebecca Anderson. Is it in Footloose? No? I feel like Becca, I, I'm really just going to trust Becca on this because she's feeling, there's a lot of confidence coming from this corner. I need a hero. I Need a Hero, 1984, by your girl Bonnie Tyler. I'm listening to it on repeat because it, it, it fits exactly with what's happening here in 1 Samuel 17. The Philistines have gathered their armies for battle. Now, the last time we saw the Philistines in the book of 1 Samuel, oh, I need to do this part, don't I, Dan? Got you, buddy. The last time we saw the Philistines in the book of 1 Samuel, 
was way back in chapter 4. So, I mean, it's only a handful of chapters have passed, but it's been a couple generations since the Israelites have gone up to battle with the Philistines. The Philistines are technologically advanced. They are a bloodthirsty military force. They have brought with them a friend, a friend whose name is Goliath. So 1 Samuel chapter 17 is where we'll be today. Let me read to you those first 11 verses or so. It says, the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at such and such places. Verse 2, and Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. And there came out, and there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath. His height was six cubits in a span. That's about nine and a half feet. He had a helmet of bronze on his head. He was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of that coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. 5,000 shekels means heavy. Okay. He had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze strung between his shoulders, and the shaft of the spear was like a weaver's beam. That's pretty thick. His spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, a.k.a. heavy. His shield-bearer went before him. He stood... And shouted to the ranks of Israel, why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down, and f- down to me. And if he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day, give me a man that we may fight together. And when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. The author of 1 Samuel slows down the action on the play this time around because he wants us to see how well-equipped Goliath is. He wants us to see... Goliath's flagrant disregard for Israel and Israel's God. He wants us to see that all of Israel and their king are in need of a hero. I need a hero. I'm holding out for a hero till the end of the night, your girl Bonnie sings. He's got to be strong. He's got to be fast. He's got to be fresh from the fight. I need a hero. I'm holding out for a hero till the morning light. He's got to be sure, and it's got to be soon. And he's got to be larger than life. Now, interesting, Israel already has a king who is larger than life. Saul, good-looking, head and shoulders taller above any man in Israel. And yet, 40 days go by before someone presents himself to challenge Goliath. 1 Samuel 17 is all about Saul's failure to be the king Israel needs in the moment they need him. It's about how their new king, who was anointed in secret in chapter 16 is actually the king they've been waiting for. They need a hero, and they will get one. Someone in their midst will step forward. But first, I want to remind us of a couple things and review a couple things. So every week, I'm reminding us of the purpose of the book. And the reason that I'm doing that is because I don't want us to lose the forest from the trees. So 1 Samuel is one story. 
First uh, and Second Samuel are one story. It's one narrative arc making one unit of thought. And very often when we read the Bible, what we end up doing is we end up kind of just getting attached to like these individual narratives. Um, and we fail to see the interconnection between them. So I keep wanting to draw us back to the purpose about how God is trying to be the king of his people's heart, about how God has been rejected as their king. So he's using human kings like Saul and human kings like David to advance his purposes, about how Saul is opposed by God in his pride, about how David is exalted in his humility. And we're going to see the Lord exalt David today because of his humility. I keep wanting to show you that. I keep wanting to show you these these themes of intervention and reversal, about how God intervenes in circumstances and reverses them, about how God opposes the proud and exalts the humble, about how God is preparing and paving the way for the true King Jesus to come and reign and rule in righteousness forever. And over the last few weeks, we have delved into some pretty difficult questions. You have been receiving content that is master's level biblical theological stuff. So good job on sticking with it as we've wrestled with some of the more difficult passages, the more confusing passages here in the text. Now, I'm thinking of two in particular. I'm thinking of uh, 1 Samuel 15, this idea devote to destruction. If, if, if you have friends that are not followers of Jesus, this idea that God would command what looks like genocide gives people pause. Um, there's this other passage we looked at last week. The spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. Both of these are really uh, struggle, struggle passages, but what I don't want you to do, church, is to have these parts of the Bible that you have relegated to, I'm never going to understand that. And here's why. The revealed things belong to us and to our children. The secret things belong to God. This is not a secret thing. This is a revealed thing, and I want us to have the tools to understand it. Now, I'm picking up that there was some confusion over these topics, so I also want to be the guy that's helping you feel confident to understand the Bible and not less confident. So I wanted to kind of go back and review just a couple quick pieces about this before we get into the David and Goliath story. So what I want you to see in these two passages, where God tells the Israelites to devote the Amalekites to destruction, where Saul is tormented by a harmful or evil spirit, what I want you to see in both of these passages is that God is executing judgment against sin. God is executing judgment against sin. Exodus says that God will not let the guilty go unpunished, so that's what's happening here. God is addressing sin. God does not like unaddressed sin. And this is a good thing, because when you think about the horror and evil in our world, it is good to know that God will, at one time or another, when Jesus returns, put all things to right and bring all things under his judgment. Titus says, some sin runs ahead to judgment and some sin lags behind but all of it will come under the rule and reign of Jesus in the end of days. And in these passages, we see God executing his judgment through a partner. God executes his judgment through a human being, or through human beings, the nation of Israel in 1 Samuel 15. He executes his judgment through a spiritual being in 1 Samuel 16. It is not uncommon for God to partner with his creation to bring about his purposes. God's desire is for you and I to be partners with him in his purposes. And actually, First Samuel, uh, the whole book of 1 Samuel is really showing about how Saul is a bad partner and David is a good one. God is always using his creation. Steph pointed out to me he used Balaam's donkey. That's a created being, a created object to bring about his will. In both passages, 
God executes judgment towards sin through human beings and a spiritual being, through his created partners. In 1 Samuel 15, God uses a human partner, the Israelites, to execute his judgment on the Amalekites. And this is not random. The God, God wasn't just like, oh, I don't like the Amalekites, let's, let's mess with them a little bit. In the book of Exodus, the Amalekites harass God's people as they're leaving slavery. And so in the book of Deuteronomy, God promises, hey, I saw how they treated you. I'm not going to let that go on forever. Don't worry. At the right time, I will bring my judgment on the Amalekites. It just so happens 1 Samuel 15 is the right time. 1 Samuel 15 is the right time. This is not God randomly striking at them. This is God bringing justice to unaddressed sin of the Amalekites from all the way back in the book of Exodus. We talked a little bit about the literary genre of this word and what it means. It means the removal of human from human use. But what we see is God executing his judgment against the Amalekites, their human partner. Now in 1 Samuel 16, God uses a spiritual being as a partner to execute his judgment against Saul. He's visited by a spiritual being. I think with New Testament eyes, it could be a demon, but it's unclear. The Hebrew says a spirit. A harmful spirit from the Lord comes on Saul, it torments him, and it causes him to go mad, madness that he further descends into the rest of the book. And in response to God's disobedience and sin, in God's, God sends a spirit to bring justice. I think what might help us understand what's happening here, the book of Romans gives us a good New Testament perspective into this. Paul says that the wages of sin is death. That sin, the only thing that sin can pay out is death. And so here we see the Amalekites getting paid what they were due, death. The wages of sin is death. Paul also says in Romans that, uh, that when we repeatedly and consistently sin against the Lord, he will hand us over to our sin and that we will receive in ourselves due penalty for our error. Saul, Saul is receiving in himself due penalty for his error. This is not the Lord doing something at random. This is the Lord executing his righteous judgment. And he's doing it in a way, and this is important too, he's doing it in a way that's consistent with his revealed character, consistent with his goodness, and consistent with his holiness. These do not vi- what God does through these partners in 15 and 16 does not violate God's goodness. It does not violate God's holiness. It is not inconsistent with his character. It is consistent with his character. It is consistent with his goodness. It is consistent with his holiness. Only a bad God leaves sin unaddressed. Only a bad God leaves the sin of the Holocaust unaddressed. God highlights his his goodness, he highlights his holiness, not by swiping at Saul or being unduly harsh to the Amalekites. God is being consistent with his character. And so what I want you to catch a vision for, what's happening here, is first of all, catch a vision that God enjoys, that part of God's character is that he enjoys partnering with his creation to bring about his purposes. Without us, without him we can't, and without us he won't, is what Augustine says. Without us, he won't, and without him, we can't, right? God has always chosen to use broken, flawed, hot messes of people to advance his purposes. It's what he does. The difference between Saul and David in 1 Samuel is the difference between a good partner and a bad partner, and that's the mirror that's being held up to us in this text. Are we being a good partner for the Lord as he accomplishes his purposes, or are we sitting on the bench, 
I think these passages also give us pause, and I'm glad that they do. If, if you're reading, if you're hearing me preach on these passages and you find yourself disinterested, I would like you to check and make sure that you have a pulse. Because if this doesn't shock and stir us and cause us to wonder about the nature of God, I, I worry that we're not actually grappling with the fact of who he is and who he says he is, he claims to be. And, and here's the thing. If it surprises you that God would go to such great lengths to deal with sin, it, it means that we've got a low view of his holiness and a low view of sin. If God is just going to kind of play nice, if God's just going to kind of dance around the edges of it, we don't have a high view of God's holiness, we don't have a high view of God's sin, a high, a high view of our sin. And ultimately, if we're confused by the fact that God would go to extremes here, why are we not similarly confused that God would go to such extremes as he does in the gospel? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever so believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That is extreme. That is significantly more extreme than God says devote the Amalekites to destruction. God sent a, whole, uh, a harmful spirit on, on Saul. That is far more extreme. And we can't have the one without the other. These are, this is just like the gospel kind of reiterating itself over and over through the Bible is that we see God going to tremendous lengths to win us back from sin. That's what's happening in these difficult passages. And as surprising as that is, the text keeps surprising us. So let's look back at 1 Samuel 17. The Philistines have presented themselves for battle, and for 40 days, Goliath is coming forward, and he's taunting not only their armies, he's taunting their God. When Goliath is saying, I defy the ranks of Israel, he's not just defying their army, Goliath is also defying their God. And every day for 40 days, he comes forward and he makes this taunt and not one person lifts a finger. Thousands of Israelites gathered up for battle and nobody moves until one day, one day, a shepherd boy who in 1 Samuel 16 was secretly anointed as king, who while his older brothers get to fight in the army, has, he's relegated to be a runner and go home at night to feed the sheep. This boy hears Goliath come out on the 40th day and says, no more, no more. David keeps hearing these taunts over and over and over again and finally says in 1 Samuel 17, 26, what is going to be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine? Those are fighting words. I, I would not encourage you to call someone an uncircumcised Philistine. And if you don't know what circumcision is, go home and ask your mom. For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Now, pay attention to the fact that these are the first words that David speaks in the narrative. The first words a character says in the Old Testament tell us almost everything we need to know about them as a character. The first words that someone speaks in the Old Testament tells us everything we need to know. This is the first thing he has to say. His concern is not for his safety. It's not the safety of his people. It's not how big and scary Goliath is. His concern is how the reputation of God is being affected by this stalemate. He is worried about God's holiness. He's worried about God's fame. And that's what motivates David and puts him into action. For 40 days, Goliath has come out and he's challenged Saul. He's challenged Saul's armies. He defames the name of Israel's God and David can't take anymore. So David said, hey, I'm gonna go do it. And by the way, this leads to an important question. Where the heck is Saul in this whole thing? Where's the king? In 1 Samuel 8, they ask for a king explicitly so that they will have a king to go out and fight their battles for them. And this is how warfare worked in the ancient Near East. Bad guys over there, good guys over here. Bad guys send out a champion. The good guys send out a champion. Whoever wins, that little fight wins the whole thing. That's why Saul comes out and says, are you going to give me a man to fight me or what? 
And Saul is nowhere to be found. When David says, hey, what's going to be done for the guy that kills Goliath? When David says, what's going to be done for the guy that kills Goliath? In verse 25, the text says, the king has offered a huge reward to anyone who kills him. He will give that man one of his daughters for a wife, and that man's entire family will be exempted from paying taxes. Listen, if a politician is giving up on money, you know they're desperate. Saul has said, if, if anybody that kills Goliath gets to marry one of my daughters, you will be exempt from taxes. You can't be drafted into my army. I mean, this is a big deal. Saul is so desperate that he's bribing common men to do a king's work. And here's the even more damning part. We have been told over and over and over again how tall Saul is. He's head and shoulders taller than any man in Israel. If Saul is head and shoulders taller than any man in Israel. Israelites at this time were about five, five and a half feet tall, so he's probably about my height, maybe a little higher, maybe he's up to seven feet. If Goliath is nine feet, he's not all that much shorter than Goliath. An interesting thing is that the original manuscripts of the Hebrew present a question as to how exactly tall Goliath was. In fact, the earliest manuscripts seem to indicate that Goliath was only six feet tall which means that Saul and Goliath are equally, equally tall. There's a lot of description later on in 17 about all of Saul's armor. Saul and Goliath are equally matched in armor. The question is kind of, well, what's the problem? And let's say this. Let's say Goliath is a giant, because I don't want to harsh your vibe and make you think that the thing you've been like, believing about David and Goliath since you were three is wrong, although I think it is. Um, it doesn't matter. Saul is pretty freakishly tall for an Israelite. Goliath is pretty freakishly, freakishly tall for a Philistine, but they're close enough that it shouldn't matter. And at the end of the day, Saul's job is to fight. And he's hiding in a tent. He's bribing common men to do his job. This is the final nail in Saul's coffin as a king. This is the moment that all of Israel starts to see what the Lord sees about Saul. Which is why in the next chapter, all of Israel starts to sing a cute little song, right? Saul has killed his thousands, but, but, uh, but David has killed his ten thousands. And it is David, a shepherd boy, who decides to take on Goliath. And, and I love what he says in verse 34. What David has to say is this. You know, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear or that took the lamb from the flock, I went after him. I went after that lion or bear, and I struck him and delivered it out of its mouth. And if that bear or lion arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine, see, David can't even bring himself to say the name. He thinks he's so irrelevant. This uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. Yahweh, who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. If this is, by the way, sounding familiar to some of you, I preached this text a couple Christmases ago. I wanted you to see it in the larger context of what's happening in Samuel. I don't care what you say about David. David has guts. I used to grab bears by their beard and club them to death. So I can handle this guy. I can, David, five and a half feet, 150 pounds, says, I got it. 
you don't know the rest of the story, if somehow you've never, ever, ever heard the story of David and Goliath, here's the, here's the ending. Prepare yourself. Spoiler alert. Goliath dies. And uh, that story's kind of told in verses 38 through 52. In verses 38 and 39, Saul tries to give David his armor. Other preachers have made a bigger deal out of this than I will today. Saul tries to give David his armor. David's like, this is all, it's too big for me. I mean, David's shorter than Saul. So he's got this giant breastplate on and this giant sword. He looks like a child. David says, I don't need this. In verse 40, it says, then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine, verse 41, moved forward, came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And the Philistine looked and saw David and he disdained him for he was but a youth. He was but a lad, ruddy and handsome in appearance. The Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his God. The Philistine said, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of Yahweh of hosts, the God of the army of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. I don't even think David is like being defiant. He's just being very matter of fact. This day the Lord will, defend, will deliver you into my hand. And I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I, will give the dead, and I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild dogs. And all the earth will know. All the earth will know, he says, that there is a God of Israel. And all this assembly will know that the Lord saves, not with the sword or the spear, the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into his hand. If, this is your, if you're using your own Bible, I'd, I'd underline that. This assembly will know that the Lord saves, not with sword or with spear. Verse 48 says, The Philistine arose and drew near to David, and David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet at Philistine. Now watch how the action slows down. It's like they're playing slow-mo. It's like a movie. And David put his hand into his bag. I mean, unnecessary amount of detail, right? Put his hand to his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead and the stone sank into the forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. In those last verses uh, in 50 to 52, uh, the Philistines are routed. The Israelites chase them away. David goes and cuts off Goliath's head. He takes Goliath's armor. He puts it in his tent. Uh, he takes the sword. He gives, it to the ta- he gives it to the tabernacle, and he takes Goliath's head, and he takes it to Jerusalem. By the way, no Israelites live in Jerusalem yet, so I think he's just trying to freak them out. Hey, here's this giant head. Do you guys want it? I think that's what the the people living in Jerusalem remember when David comes knocking on the door and says, hey, I'd like your city, please. By the way, it's like gory and gross. Like, did you know when you cut someone's head off, the trachea is always hanging down? Okay. Bible is R-rated, people. I'm just letting you know. And, uh, but what the most important part in that is not the gore or the violence, my friends. The most important part of this is that part of verse 47. This assembly will know that the Lord saves not with the sword and the spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. See, David realizes, David sees something that everybody else doesn't. He knows that the battle is the Lord's. One of these things to note about what's happening in the book is really chapters 16 and 17 go together. They're they're really having a conversation with each other. And they're having this conversation about one idea, this idea that we saw last week, that the Lord sees not as a man sees. 
because the Lord looks upon the heart. We look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks upon the heart. And here's what gives David a leg up in this whole scenario. He sees what other people don't. He's living into 1 Samuel 16, 7. Uh, Bill Arnold, it's real small on the screen. Let me read it to you. He's one of the best Old Testament professors uh, and scholars in the country. He said, David sees and hears things that other characters do not. The Israelite troops see and hear an intimidating infantryman from the Philistine camp who looks and sounds invincible. David hears and sees only blasphemous defiance of the armies of the living God. Others see reason for fear and hesitation, but David sees only reason for taking immediate action. Others see despair, where David sees an opportunity for national vindication against the Philistines and personal advancement in the service of the king. In other words, reading chapters 16 and 17 together suggests that David has learned or is learning not not to be overly impressed with external and physical appearances. See, David sees and hears something that everybody else doesn't. And this is what I want you to remember today. The battle is the Lord's. It's not David's. It's not Saul's, it's not Goliath's, it's not the Philistines, it's not the Israelites, it's the Lord's. And what I want you to remember today is that the battle is the Lord. And what that means, if the battle belongs to the Lord, it's the Lord who is the hero of the battle. See, the the, the moral of this story, the moral of the story in 1 Samuel 17 isn't go be like David, have big faith and you can take on mountains, you can take on giants, you can do anything. That's not the M.O., that's not what this passage is all about. This isn't about you. This passage isn't about David. David is not the hero that they were looking for. You know who the hero was? The Lord. Quick tip for reading the Old Testament. The hero of the story is always the Lord. He's always the good guy. But when we read this story the way we've been trained to read it, that it's about me and my faith and my ability to take on giants and do hard things... What I end up doing is consigning the Lord to the role of sidekick, and I set myself up as the hero of my own story. When I make it about David and not the Lord, when I make it about David's faith and not the Lord, when I make my story about me and don't put the Lord as the center of my story and the hero of my story, what I end up doing is I end up casting myself as Batman and making the Lord Robin. And nobody wants to be Robin. He might not even be Robin. The Lord might kind of be like relegated to Alfred. Like stay at home, build me nice things, give me secret superpowers that nobody else wants to do, but don't step onto the field of battle because Lord, I got this. We make our faith like a little tool in our bat belt. I've got my batarang, I've got my bat rope, and I've got my prayer warriors, right? God is not our sidekick. God is the hero of the story. What does this look like? What does it look like when we set ourselves up as the hero of the story? Well, I think it looks like saying something like, God won't give you more than you can handle. God won't give you more than you can handle. Or saying, God won't give me more than I can handle. Because when I say that, It is a vote of my own confidence to handle the hard things that the Lord decides to give to me. God won't give me more than I can handle. Cancer? No big deal. You know why? I've got the Lord back in the bat cave and he's got my hookup. No. God is not the sidekick. He's not the Robin. He's not the Alfred. God can't stay home. It's because of him. It's because of him 
God, of course, gives me more than I can handle. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here every week with you in the presence of the Lord, limping through until God comes back in glory. I think it also looks like what Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 7, a troubling passage if there ever was one, more troubling the longer that you've walked with the Lord and done things for him. Matthew 7, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, only the one who does the will of my heavenly Father who is in heaven. He said, On that day, you will say to me, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. See, Jesus says, you got to this point where you so relegated me away from being the hero of the story that you just used me to your own ends. You didn't need me. You just used what I could give you to accomplish what you wanted to do. You had nothing to do with me. We want the Lord to be at the center of the story, not us, not the things that we do. If your religious accomplishments, hear me on this, this is vitally important. God does not care that you come to church. That does not earn you points with him. God does not care about your religious accomplishments. God does not care about the things that you do for him, especially if you do them for him, but apart from him. God wants your heart, and from having your heart, we start to attend church and be part of community and serve and say, yes, that's true. But it's not your religious accomplishments that make you right before God. It's not your religious accomplishments that, 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 that set us up as the hero of our story. See, what we see in David is how exactly to make sure God is the hero. So how does David do that? You know, David is the only person on the battlefield who knows that the battle is the Lord's. And so David does a curious thing. David focuses on the Lord's glory, on the Lord's honor, on the Lord's fame, and he obeys. And he wins the day. See, here's what happens. Here's how we get God to be the center of our story. Here's how we let God be the hero. When we obey quietly and simply in a long obedience in the same direction, when we obey, it gets us out of the way so that God can tackle the giants. I find, speaking of can't, I find that we far too often, when facing a giant, talk about what we can't do, right? In the midst of cancer, in the midst of a difficult family relationship, in the midst of our infertility, all we can think about is what we could not do. And, and the way that we let God be the hero of the story is stop obsessing about what we can't do, what we can't accomplish, what we can't make happen, and what we start to do is focus on what we can do. And typically speaking, when we're facing a giant, there's about 99 million things that we can do and only two or three that we can't. So why don't we focus on what we can do and that gets us out of the way so the Lord can work. That's all David does. David obeys. He's humble. He cares more about the Lord's glory. It gets him out of the way so that the Lord can take Goliath down. The Lord is the hero of the story, not David. David was just the guy that had it together enough to think through it all the way and to get out of the way. We don't need courage, we don't need prayer, we don't need some sort of spiritualized version of our five smooth stones. What we need is a long obedience in the same direction, quietly getting out of the way so the Lord can handle it. And here's the thing. Because the battle belongs to the Lord, victory is his to win, and he is more than capable. 
Paul says in Romans 8 that we are more than conquerors, and it's usually here that I like to remind Browns fans that you probably don't know what that feels like. <laughs> we are more than conquerors. Well, how can that be? How can it be that we are more than conquerors? How can it be that neither height nor depth nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor harmful spirits from the Lord nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation would be able to separate us from the love of God. How can it be? It's because 2,000 years ago, all of humanity was lined up against all the forces of darkness, and out from our line stepped a man who was like us, and we esteemed him not. There was nothing about him and his appearance that would attract us to him, but he stepped out, and he looked at the champion of sin, the death, and the devil, and he looked at that and said, I will take it. And he did it, and he won the battle in the most curious way. He died. He was crucified. He was buried. He was left for dead. And what death didn't know is that when it swallowed Jesus, it bit off more than it could chew. And suddenly Jesus bursts out from the inside and he wins the victory over sin and the flesh and the world and the devil and death itself. We are playing on a winning victory field. And there are giants still. They have power for only a tiny bit longer. But because Jesus has gone the 99.9% .9 of the way, and we are just waiting for that last little bit of a bow to be wrapped on top of his work of salvation, we are more than conquerors. We are more than conquerors. There is no giant, quote unquote, that you will ever face, ever, ever, that is stronger than Jesus because the battle belongs to the Lord. Church, my friends, my beloved, do not, do not, in the face of the giants in your life, obsess about what is not happening and what can't happen. Can I invite you to turn your eyes to that which is in your realm, to get out of the way, to let the Lord do his thing. Uh, let me pray, and then Steph will lead us through some responding time. Jesus, you <clears throat> are so good to us, and you have uh, won the victory. This is why in heaven right now, there is a new song being sung um, about what you have accomplished for us. And while we wait for the last little bits of that to be realized in our lives and in this world, we give you thanks that you are whole and big and that in our obedience to you and the simple ways that we do what you ask us to do, it gets us out of the way so you can move. And so move in my friends' lives this morning that the giants that uh, harass them, like the, the Amalekites harassed the people, the people of God, that you would, um, at your right time, win victory over them. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, I was thinking a lot about how we always know our giants, right? Like, they're right before us. They're the thing that we can't look past. We can't see past. We feel like we can't move past. Um, but often, we're so focused on them that we can't think about what is God calling us to? How is he getting our attention? What step of obedience is he asking us to take, even in the midst of that pain or that really hard thing that we're walking through? And so on the back of your program, if you have one, it says, um, how is God getting your attention and what are you going to do about it? And um, I would just, we're going to take a couple minutes here. I would just ask you to think, how is God getting your attention this morning? What step of obedience is he asking you to take, even in the midst of maybe the hardest things that you're walking through? Um, is it stepping into more time with him? Is it um, maybe getting rid of something that's keeping you from, from seeing him for who he is? Um, so we're going to just take a couple minutes, and then we'll uh, do communion. But I just want to invite you to prayerfully ask him, how is he getting your attention, and what step of obedience is he calling you to?